Innovation is so important. And when we talk about digital transformation, culture change, and the role of a business evolution, looking forward, understanding where it's come from, looking at the industry, all these matter. Today on episode number 282 of CXO Talk, we are exploring these topics in retail. And boy, oh boy, we have two people who are world experts qualified to have that discussion. I'm Michael Craigsman. I'm an industry analyst and the host of CXO Talk. I want to say a quick thank you to Livestream for supporting us low these many years with our video infrastructure. And if you go to livestream.com slash CXO Talk, in fact, they will give you a discount. Now, before we start, I want you to tell a friend, better to tell five, but at least one, tell a friend, tell a colleague, and like us, no, the word is subscribe, subscribe on YouTube, do that, tell a friend, subscribe on YouTube. Without further ado, I want to introduce our first guest, Dana Randall is the head of, head of innovation for Tapestry. Now, you may not know the brand Tapestry, but you sure know the brands that fall under it, such as Coach, Kate Spade, and Stuart Weitzman. Dana Randall, this is your first time on CXO Talk, and I'm so happy that you're here. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Dana, uh, tell, us about, tell us about Tapestry and tell us about your role. Sure. So um, I head up Innovation and Tapestry, which you mentioned owns uh, Coach Kate Spade and Stuart Weitzman. I started the company working at the Coach brand. And over the past few years, as Coach Inc. has evolved into Tapestry and becoming a multi-brand company, my role has then shifted to help drive innovation across the three brands. Okay, so we are going to explore innovation in retail, and you're you're the in the the high end fashion segment of retail. So I'm very interested to have this conversation. Our second guest is a an old friend of CXO Talk. He is really one of the world's top researchers on digital transformation, and he wrote a report recently on change agents. And so I'm really honored and thrilled to welcome back Brian Solis to CXO Talk. Hey, Brian, how are you? I am doing well. I'm excited here to be uh, on, uh, on episode 282. My goodness, I think the last time it was 280. You're just climbing those numbers. And Michael, I'll make you happy. I just subscribed to the YouTube channel. Everybody should do that. Uh, and Look, at the end of the day, one of the reasons why I love being uh, on on this show is, one, because you have me here. <laughs> You're kind enough to do that. But two, these conversations are super stimulating, and I leave inspired every single time, and I am definitely a big fan of Dana, so happy to be here. Well, that's fantastic. You know, let's dive into this conversation, and maybe, Brian, we should start with you to give us an overview of retail why there's a lot of change in retail and and so why do we need to have the innovation conversation about the retail industry <laughs> I'm sure data is going to have a lot to say about this as well I, I am just putting the finishing touches on the state and future of retail uh, some some research I've been working on over the last year and I think like any any 
industry, to be honest, everything's in need of innovation and the challenges are pretty much consistent across the board. But the reason why we have to focus on innovation in retail and retail brands is simply because the consumer is changing so rapidly. And it's not just because they're connected to a cell phone all the time or smartphone or whatever you want to call it, a new digital appendage. It's because what happens on the other side of that screen is empowering them. It's making them more informed, making them more connected, making them more demanding, elusive, impatient, a whole lot of things. And for brands to be relevant, it's not just about creating great products that people want to pay a lot of money for or or find their store. It's about what happens when you connect that brand retail and also consumer goods into an experience that matters to someone who's just not the same consumer that say when Toys R Us was founded, it's a just it's a different world. So Dana, uh, consumers have changed. How have consumers changed? Why have consumers changed? Give us some insight into that, please. Absolutely. So I think the things I like to think about is what's changed in our lives just overall, and with retail, we've become a bit more automated in in a positive way and sometimes more efficient. And I think this starts to challenge then what is the role of the store in retail? Like we can now shop at three o'clock in the morning, you know, in our bed or on our couch from an app online. And so the reasons that someone now gets up, you know, leaves their home and goes to a store has shifted. And I think that's driven a lot of the change about what we think about, about what is the experience that we need to deliver for customers now that a lot of their actual purchasing is starting to move more and more to digital. Brian, I'm sure you have some thoughts on this notion of is what's the role of the store in, in retail? Well, I was just admiring Dana's background. I am, I'm a little jealous. She seems to be in a very nice space on a beautiful day. Uh, look, I think, as she said, what does it mean to shop? What, what does it mean to go into a store? Uh, I think we used to, a lot of times when we have these conversations about innovation, we're talking to executives who know the world as it was, who came up in that world, who've been successful in that world, and they're making decisions or they're considering investments about the future of the, of a retail experience that they just can't simply understand because they're not their consumer. Uh, in fact, in many cases where we see retail getting into a lot of problems are good old-fashioned things like egos and politics, but also leverage debt. And all of this stuff starting to come due and massive retail rents and employees and overhead. And then the reality of having shareholders and stakeholders who are dictating your investments in the future as being the cost center and not as an investment in, in, in relevance. So there's a lot of things that we have to consider when we're talking about innovation. But at the heart of the matter, what we can't overlook is the fact that the consumer is in control of the experiences that they want to have. And that consumer is different. And in those cases, success is a poor teacher in the future. I, I, at this point, we have to stop resting on our laurels and our experiences that we've had over the last 10, 20, 30 years and start making decisions out of our comfort zone. And I know that this is the world that Dana lives in. You know, She's not part of just a great brand and, and, and on the innovation side of a great brand, she's been involved with startups 
for for pretty much her entire career, just like I have. And once you start playing in that game, you you live by a motto of constraint forces creativity. You have to succeed. You have to focus on growth, and you have no choice in the matter. And in those cases, shareholders want you to actually break new ground. But I'll stop there because I I, I feel like I'm getting on a soapbox. And, and who has soapboxes anymore, by the way? Just where did that come from? But you're preaching to the choir, Brian. And and this is something that Brian and I actually talk about a lot. And as there's a shift between what's happening in the consumer, one of the biggest challenges is then what are the necessary shifts within the organization that need to happen to to adjust to that? And it's not easy. And I, I think it's important to be really open and honest about the conversation that it's very, very difficult to transform a legacy company and you know, organizational structure and silos in order to better serve what this future consumer is looking like. Brian, I see you nodding at this idea that it's difficult to transform a legacy company, which is a topic that transcends any industry, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, the conversations that Dana and I and, and I have had have all really been about the human challenges we all face in trying to to move people to a new a new comfort zone or or the to, to chase where we need to be and getting people outside of the world that they know. You know, it it's interesting because I, I think you, you can't talk about the future of retail without looking at Toys R Us. And I think when we look at a world through a lens of legacy versus a lens of possibility, you see exactly what happens, right? You have you have 15, 14 or 15 million uh, paid out as part of the bankruptcy uh, settlement to executives. You have 33,000 people who are losing their jobs. You have a board that rewards mistakes with literally money. And until we start to change the incentive packages for executives, until we start to put pressure on the board of looking beyond quarter to quarter performance, and starting to make the investments that are going to help them be relevant next year and 10 years from now, I, the, the conversation about legacy is just, it's, it's frustrating and it's, it's killing companies. And it's people like Dana, it's change agents like you and me that go, go into these organizations and try to just knock some sense into folks. But at the end of the day, the entire incentive structure for how these companies perform and operate is at the root of the problem. And it's not just retail, it's, it's really any, any industry. I was saying, I think the thing that to think about is also, there's a lot of pressure on companies right now to, to be innovating. And while there's a lot of interest in saying we're, we're innovating, we're changing, we're transforming, this is important to us, there's a certain amount of air cover that's needed in order for this to work. And the, the stakes are very high and the expectations are very high that everything you do is going to work and is going to be a success. And that's also not really that realistic in, in typical innovation. And I think th those are some of the struggles that are really, they're industry agnostic. It's just about company, culture, legacy organizations versus more digitally native brands that are operating under a certain set of success metrics and, and, and goals that were designed probably anywhere from 75 to 20 years ago. Yeah, and I'm just going to jump in there too, Michael. I, I th that's exactly right. When we're making decisions about the future based on standards of the past, and <clears throat> it's incredibly ironic that, in I'm sure, Dana, you've, you've probably seen this a million times, especially when 
when we talk about innovation, I think we naturally tend to lean on technology too much. You know, so what what's our beacon strategy, and what's uh, can we can we get some in-store pickup from our mobile app and, you know, really looking at, and we've talked about this before too, Michael, where we get caught up in, in technology as a crutch, but w- what ends up happening is that we're, we're putting them into the constructs that are 50 years old, 60 years old. I mean, retail itself is how, how old is that? Hasn't changed much, but technology is an enabler uh, and it's not, it's not the solution in of itself. And unfortunately, the biggest opportunity for innovation, I think, is in perspective. How, how do we see space? How do we see service? How do we see process? Uh, I've, uh, in episode 280, uh, when, when we had uh, our friend from Neiman Marcus on, you know, here's a guy that came from the tech world who really started to preach about understanding the consumer before you could make any tech investments, but being held accountable for the investments that he was making to show that there was legitimate ROI against those investments. And I think when we look short term in those regards and his battle of trying to get people to see things differently, I just wonder how how could we accelerate getting executives to take chances on a consumer that they don't understand where they can take a step back and look at the four walls of a store and say, this doesn't make sense the way it used to. Okay, so Dana, let me summarize our story so far. So we have uh, financial pressures, look at Toys R Us. We have changing consumer expectations and behavior. We have a, a notion of what is a store to begin with right? Is a physical, what is, what is retail? Is it a physical store? Is it online? So we have all of that shifting around. And we have companies with established ways of doing things. And we know that in general, people are resistant to change. And so given all of that, I guess the question is, what, are, what do we do? What do we do? I think we start with defining terms and getting on the same page to make sure we're talking about the same thing. So innovation is a very interesting and dangerous word. It almost makes me a little uncomfortable because it's being thrown around a lot. And one of the things I like to do in these conversations is first sort of get down to basics and say, what are we talking about? What type of innovation are we talking about? Are we talking about business innovation, maybe a new business model or transforming the way that a company works? Are we talking about customer experience innovation? And that could be something like in-store technology or just general custom things that touch the customer experience. Or in the third bucket, are we talking about product innovation? And generally, the answer is all three. And to get more alignment to say, okay, well, what are we going after at this moment or at at this table or in this conversation, because I think one of the traps that we're falling into and and it's like, what do we do? Where do we go? Is because we're, we're actually not aligning right up front on what it is we're actually talking about. And then what are some of the goals that we're trying to get to? That's exactly right. I, you know, if you ask 10 people what innovation means, you're going to get 20 to 30 different answers yet. It's, it's something that's thrown around so easily and so quickly, but 
so underappreciated. I think anybody whose role, and, and Dana, kudos to you, I mean, anybody whose role has to do with innovation is part, and not saying this is the case of tapestry, but just in my own research, you know, it's, it's part having to understand not only what's happening outside of your organization, what are the trends that are, are important, how are consumers reacting to those trends, but also trying to navigate in a very human way things that are just tied to good old-fashioned change management. You know, How do you translate these insights and these trends into action within the organization and, and get the support necessary to be able to test and learn and execute? And uh, I think that's a lot of times where, where the roadblock happens. I mean, and Dana, what have you seen in your experiences? I mean, I think the first thing is owning your own failures, right? So when I went into the, I started with the company, I actually was not um, an employee of the company. I worked at an agency and my background comes from the startup industry, tech and agency, not retail. So I came into this organization with a certain style and a certain approach that was very different from how a typical retail brand operates. And the way that I came into this was sort of guns blazing. And that was not the right approach. You know, you, I learned the hard way about, you know, how to get alignment and buy-in from whether it's your peers or senior leadership. And I think that was sort of the first thing is that realizing that this is a journey. No one has, there's no blueprint on how to do this. And Anyone in my type of role is going to not just fail in some of the tests that we do, but also sometimes fail in our approach and to get a bit of forgiveness within the organization to understand that we're trying something completely new and we're not going to be perfect every step of the way. You know, I was thinking, Brian, when when you said, when you made the comment, uh, every person who's involved as a change agent in innovation, and then you paused. I was thinking to myself, the, the term that came to mind was masochist. <laughs> 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 because every person who is involved as a change agent is going to be running, you know, because the, right, the basic problem is uh, we have organizations have a business model. They have established organizations, a business model, revenue stream. And anytime you change, you run the risk of opening up for the future, which requires investment today that may not see an ROI today, but at the same time, disrupting that established revenue stream. And so there's a natural, very strong bias against change. And so, so therefore, what are the attributes of a successful change agent, given the fact that the role in any company by definition is going to involve a certain amount of masochism? <laughs> yeah, I, that's a good place to start. Uh, any, any conversation that starts with masochism, uh, <laughs> let's go. I, I I'll, I'm going to let also Dana add to what I'm about to say because she's in the throes of it. Uh, you have, I think you have this idea of what it takes when you go in. Uh, I don't know a hundred percent of the time that anyone hiring for innovation really knows what they want. Uh, so when you get in, you have this idea of what it means to be successful and what you need to do to get the job done. I think over time you learn characteristics and you gain expertise that you didn't necessarily know you would have to have 
things like thicker skin, uh, you know, uh, less emotional attachment to pushback and skepticism, uh, things like becoming a politician within your own organization to bring people together and and survive all of the the different attacks or sabotage efforts that happen along the way. Uh, other things are you know, being a cheerleader to yourself and, and to those who believe in what you're trying to do around you because it's hard and it, not everybody has been successful previously in bringing people together. Uh, just So those are all very human traits. I think the other thing, though, in terms of real characteristics of what it takes to be successful is really understanding the dynamic of the technology world, which is, as we all know, its own language its own speed and being able to translate that to up to the language of the C-suite, translating these trends into real business value, business growth opportunities and addressing sort of not just the skepticism, but also what people don't know what they don't know. And it's sort of the job of the change agent to be a translator and to be an empower of helping people understand that this is exactly how we connect the dots, not only to success, but business growth over time. But on that, I'll turn it over to Dana because she's, she's there. She's, she lives this. Yeah. I think the other piece of the puzzle that happens is blocking and tackling the buzzwords that end up driving a lot of initiatives or at least driving the interest in initiative that doesn't necessarily not always makes sense. So for example, you know, people will start talking about blockchain a lot, or they'll start talking about augmented reality. And what will happen is there's a general interest in what are we doing about this? How, you know, we need to do something with this. And you're, you're often in a role where you have to say, I understand you're excited about this particular topic, but we have to take a step back and figure out, should, does this really make sense for us? Are we, are we interested in something just because everyone's talking about it and we want to be a part of that conversation? Or is this actually meaningful and transformative for our business? And that's also hard because while on my end, let's say I'm used to rejection all the time, you know, because failure is part of my business on, on a more executive level, they're not necessarily used to someone saying, no, we're not going to do that. And so there's a there's a balance um, and there's a collaboration that needs to happen and again education on top of that. I think these are some of the things that th- this is industry agnostic. I don't. It doesn't matter if you work in grocery or automotive or retail. You know, these are just some things that will happen on an ongoing basis. And and figuring out how to navigate them is probably the hardest part of my job. We have an interesting question from from Twitter. Arsalan Khan asks. It's kind of a broad question about retail. He says, what is the future of retail from internal operations to customer service? Talk about changes. Why do we even need to have inventory in retail stores anymore? And, and I think this is the change and innovation question, what bridges can we build now to achieve this future vision? And I see this as the how does retail stay relevant question. And Brian, you brought up uh, Toys R Us earlier. And I guess, therefore, that demonstrates it's a pretty important question, even if you're a very large company. Yeah, uh, well, I'll, I'll kick it off. And obviously, this is the world that Dana lives in. Have you, when's the last time you've been in a Toys R Us store? I mean, it's it hasn't changed much since 1970. And 
yeah, the, the, the challenges, and you had a company there that has so much debt that they couldn't afford to invest in things like customer experience. And so the best they could do was, you know, build a website, build a mobile app and just give the semblance of being modern. But in reality, the, the reason why I love this question is because it's all of the above, right? It's, I think things like conversations about inventory are, are lower on the pyramid of innovation for me in, in terms of what is the experience supposed to be now and over time that the consumer expects. And the challenge is, is that retailers look to each other to kind of see how they're going to one-up one another or what someone doing in terms of case studies. I look at companies like Uber and Tinder and just random apps and services that are changing the consumer mindset for the types of experiences that they want to have and use those insights in much in the same way a UX designer might to design physical experiences and processes that a consumer would want to have. And that's that's what Starbucks does, right? Starbucks and, and Domino's as well. These are two companies that don't look at themselves as coffee or pizza companies, respectively. Starbucks considers themselves a mobile technology company, and they make decisions that way. They're staffed that way. Domino's, of the 800 people that are employed in their headquarters, 400 of them are software programmers, and they're testing robot deliveries. Uh, literally, there are robots that hit my ankles around where I live as they're testing autonomous delivery. There are trucks that can drive themselves and bake pizzas as they go. <clears throat> my point is this, is that we don't know. And that's the conversation we need to start having is we can't be too radical overnight, but we do have to start investing in the infrastructure and the expertise necessary to test and learn what's possible with the space we have. And so I'll just, before I turn it over to, to Dana, that means things like product innovation, sure, but service innovation, right? Like the same type of thinking that went into Disneyland and Disney World, uh, process innovation, uh, experience innovation, and then all of the operational innovation to sort of bring those things to light. And we have to start making decisions based on what would you do if you were starting from scratch versus how are we going to make what we have work? Because that that makes things sluggish and often wrong. Perfect segue. Thank you, Brian. Because what I was just thinking in my head is when you work at a large brand, if you're a publicly traded company, you have a responsibility. You cannot just tear it down. And you have to keep this massive cruise ship moving along. And it's that's probably one of the biggest challenges is that the, the business still needs to continue to grow and succeed. At the same time, you've got someone like me who's sort of operating a speedboat going around this ship and annoying a few people along the way. But that's probably one of the biggest challenges. I think that often people will come into the conversation and they say, you're doing it all wrong. You need to tear it all down. And there's a reality. You've got thousands of employees. You've got shareholders. You just can't tear it all down and say, we're going to start over. Some companies have gone with the approach of, we're going to either build or acquire a small, nimble brand where we can do these things here. I think one of the other challenges is when you have a larger global brand, you have a little less ability to do some of these really risky moves because of, again, all these responsibilities, as well as the fact that you can't completely alienate your customer. So one of the approaches that I, I see a lot of companies do 
is through saying, well, we're going to build this other brand or we're going to acquire this other brand and we're going to use that as our, essentially our lab to test and learn. And, and, that, and that's one approach, but that it can't be the only solution. I love that. Uh, I love that notion that you, you, you can't alienate your customers. And I think Dana just described the fundamental challenge that large established organizations face with innovation. But I still think it, we're, we're sidestepping the question, the important question of innovation is absolutely necessary because if we don't innovate, whether it's retail or any other business, we end up like, like Toys R Us. And so despite the difficulty, despite the masochism of, that every change agent takes on, it's still absolutely necessary. And so therefore, what are the conditions that, that need to be in place and how do, we, how do we ensure that this type of transformation occurs and an investment? One other thing to add to that question is how do you, how do you convince decision makers and Dana, not to throw too many questions at you, but how do you, how do you convince decision makers who don't live the brand the way that, let's just say, mod cloth consumers do or uh, Bonobos consumers do? You know, how do you convince decision makers to take chances on a world that they don't understand or know? So I think the answer is you're essentially forced to work on two types of initiatives. You need to work on what to build the credibility and the trust within the leadership of the organization to have a couple wins and wins that are aligned to the goals of that executive. So these might be innovations that are, the customer never sees, but they are revenue generating. Um, they're helping address some business issues that need attention. But it, these are not typically the, the sexy things that, that I want to work on, but it's necessary. So it's a matter of balancing, you know, driving towards initiatives that are going to help maybe operationally, organizationally, the company, and then at the same time, have a couple smaller, let, you know, more conservative investment innovations that touch the customer. I think where I see a lot of failure is when someone throws several millions of dollars at an initiative that is customer facing, it's, I mean, to say it's 50-50 that it'll succeed is I actually, it's more like 80-20. And these types of investments, when they don't succeed, really, you end up shooting yourself in the foot. So I think it's, that's the sort of how. It's, it's to build the trust and credibility within the, within the executive suite to drive towards programs that are really helping the bottom line and the share price of the company. And at the same time, sort of peppering in some of these more sexy customer-facing innovations. We have uh, a question that has just come in, <clears throat> excuse me, from Twitter. And Olga Reinhold asks, uh, what are the formal skills, educational, and the soft skills that one needs to possess to successfully lead retail innovation and to cultivate the organizational trust that's required? I think it's a great question. Dana, you, thoughts from you? Well, there's not a single answer. I think that the answer varies based on the company that you're going to be a part of. So my particular background is I was a programmer. So I'm definitely 
tech savvy. I understand how to talk to engineers. I wouldn't write a line of code today, but that was part of my background. I was also a, a designer. So my role today is much more strategy focused, but the foundation of my background was in you know, web development and different actually t- working in tech. Now, you'll have someone like Scott from Neiman Marcus and his profile is very different from mine, yet we have the same job in similar organizations. But, you know, Scott is able to be successful at his company. You know, he has been there for several years and it was a role that was created from within. Um, And again, it has to do with the culture of the company that he works at. I think that, you know, the, the answer in a general sense, is the person who runs innovation has to have a little bit of everything. And I hate to say like jack of all trades and master of none, because you want to be a master of innovation, but you need to have the diversity of experience. If you're just purely IT, you're going to have a hard time understanding the other necessary parts of what your job needs to be, whether it's soft skills, more creative skills, ideation, strategy. So you need to have possess a little bit of everything. And that's a hard role to hire for. Brian, your your thoughts? I was just uh, I was just geeking out because I, I started as a as a programmer as well. And <laughs> I don't know that I could write a line of code anymore. Uh, there's there's just something there to balance both sides of the brain. But I think what what Dana was hitting on at the end is I think what what I want to talk a little bit about, which is culture. Uh, one of the things that I found in, in this future retail report uh, was that a lot of brands are opening up or building innovation centers and innovation labs. And one of the things that I had found was you know, when you talk when you talk to the people running these labs, you know, get get a glass of wine into them or a beer into them, and you know, you, you shift from analyst to therapist, and you start to really hear the challenges that they have, which is that you you're going to bump into challenges, or you might even fail completely if you're trying to bring new models and new initiatives into a culture that is still gripping on to the past. How do we keep our consumers? How do we woo consumers from our competitors? In addition to having conversations that, well, what about the people we don't reach? How could we be that next startup? I have this uh, cartoon that I'm drawing that was inspired from the research with my friends over at Gaping Void that says you can't hipster or millennial your way to innovation. Uh, at the end of the day, you actually have to have a culture that supports taking risk, that su- that empowers or incentivizes people to unlearn and learn new things, that protect their renegades uh, within the organization who are just simply trying to answer the question of how do we stay relevant and how do we compete for the future, and then also help those who are holding on to the past realize that their future as, a, as an individual, as a professional, relies on the success of these change agents, that they're creating their future jobs for everybody. So it's, it's a tough balance, but I, I think at the end of the day, you have to have a culture that supports that. Another piece I want to add to that is, which we haven't talked about, is the reality that a big part of my job, and I know my peers' jobs, is working with startups and helping these startups that are being more innovative and introducing technologies to our organizations, helping them succeed within the culture of our um, organization. And and that's actually a really big part of my job. So 
Brian is my therapist, but at the same time, I'm often the therapist to the startups that we work with to help them navigate our organization, help them make the right decisions for their company and their success. Because the same way, you know, I want to succeed and need to succeed. I also need them to succeed. What advice do you offer to those startups in terms of navigating your organization or other similar large companies that by definition, a large company has a need to innovate? So I think a couple of the key things that I will say on a pretty regular basis is it's okay to say no. And that's a very hard thing for a startup to do when they're really, really eager to work with one of your brands. And another piece is don't build something just for us. If I see a lot of these companies fall into the trap of ultimately taking their product and losing their product vision and building something to the specific needs of this particular brand. And the question that I often ask these you know, founders and co-founders that I work with is, does this particular feature or does this pivot align with where you're going to go? And is this scalable for other companies that you want to work with? And if the answer is no, and they don't see the end game being acquired by the company that they're custom building software for, then that's, that's a lot of the guidance that I feel that I have to give on a regular basis. I absolutely love what you're saying. You know, I, I think we could, I think we'd all laugh about it now, but it makes all the sense in the world that when Walmart acquired Jet.com and tried to impose the Walmart cu- culture on the Jet.com office, uh, you, you famously heard that they banned alcohol uh, from from the building. That killed the spirit of what made Jet.com Jet.com, and. <clears throat> If you can, you could take a, you could take a great team and a great technology, and you could try to tweak it and bend it against your aging business models, or you can acquire companies and talent and task them with creating your future, right? And that I think is the the, the balance that we have to understand: is what innovation do we apply to scaling what we know and what we do very well, and what what balance of innovation goes to opening new markets, creating new value propositions? Because in the end, that's the difference. And we've had this conversation before. That's the difference between iteration and innovation. Iteration is doing the same things better. And innovation is doing new things that create new value. And that leads to disruption, which is doing new things that make the old things obsolete. And when you look at all of the different accelerators and incubators that exist around the country and around the world about the future of retail, you have traditional brands that are coming in and tasking these awesome startups with solving problems against their past or their legacy business models. And it, it, it's, I don't want to say it's laughable, but it's laughable. And at the same time, we need people like Dana to be fully empowered to go out there and task startups with creating what the future of retail is going to be. And that's how the future unfolds. We don't know what it is. Like Dana said earlier, there's no playbook for it. But the way to do it is to do it. I actually, we're, we're, we're reaching the point in the show where we have about five minutes left. And I have uh, many questions that, that I would like to get answered. And so so this is the point in the show where I have to ask you rapid fire questions that and and ask you to answer quite quickly so we can get through because like I have all the stuff that I need to know. How's that? 
<laughs> and so, so uh, Brian, let me let me start with you. Uh, where should in the organization should innovation report? Where does it belong? Uh, I will look at in the quick answer the Westfield model, which is now become one market. They spun it out because it was reporting to corporate, and they spun it out as its own company to have its own PL so that it can perform as necessary, even if the culture of the organization isn't going to allow it to be successful. I think that's one interesting model that I'm exploring. Was that quick enough? You can elaborate sl slightly more, like like precisely who should innovation who should own innovation? Innovation should own itself and be, it's almost like innovation as a service, as a model within the organization that it is brought in as an internal expert and funded as such to deliver against solving problems and creating new opportunities. I, it, it could report to a new type of role. It could be a chief innovation officer, but it shouldn't report to a traditional CEO or a traditional board. What I want to know is inside the traditional corporate hierarchy, where we want to change and we don't want to change, where should innovation go? None of the above. <laughs> I mean, why, why would you have innovation report to a traditional hierarchy of, of executives that don't understand innovation? Because we want to that, change, Brian. We want to change. That's, that's why I think this one market is a really interesting, promising example. They spun it out and they've created their own hierarchy. It reports to itself. Right, and it's tasked to helping the company change. So it's brought. It's almost like an internal external consultancy. So in that case, it has to report to the CEO of the traditional organization. But that CEO has been empowered and rewarded for innovation. Not other CEOs aren't. Okay, so I'm not getting. I'm not getting the simplistic answer that I was hoping for to the question. Well, I'm sure Data will be able to tell you the same thing. It's like if 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 she, if she talks to brands all the time, where should it report? None of the above, because it's going to fail. Okay, Dana. So let me ask you a question. So in the situation that most companies face, which is, we of course we want to innovate. How can you even ask? If we want to innovate, that's that's like a totally lame question. But at the same time, we don't really want to innovate. And why are you going around like trying to make changes? Because, you know, we have a business to run here. So in that kind of environment, which is like almost every company, where should innovation report? How about that, Dana? So I think the answer to the question can be, it has to be the C-suite, right? You have to be talking to the, the top of the organization. and it could be the CEO. It could be, I mean, I've seen it be sitting inside IT. I've never seen that work particularly well. Um, and, and, it, and you're going to yell at me because I know I'm not going to directly answer the question. But I think it comes down to it's the entire structure is in the process of changing. So where does it report now versus where maybe can it report in a year from now? I think there's not a clear answer. I know where I sit in the organization. And I think this is a conversation that we're constantly having is, is that the right place? Does it make sense? And also as the company grows and changes, that also shifts. So where my role sat under the coach brand, when we became Tapestry, all of a sudden, I am working across three different brands. And now how do you plug that in to now you have brand CEOs, and then you have the tapestry CEO, and then you have... So it, it's there's no really simple answer. And if I had the answer, I think this wouldn't be as challenging of a conversation. 
Okay, then let me try. Okay, so so I get it. It's hard. I get that. I get that. Okay, that's that's basically what what you're both uh, what you're both saying. Let me ask a question this way then. Uh, and so I'm particularly familiar with the enterprise software industry, having worked or consulted, involved with most of the major enterprise software brands, and at least in that industry. And I have to suspect that since human nature is the same. Therefore, this must be true in the fashion industry as well, which is when somebody tries to introduce business model change, there are these anti-innovation antibodies that scurry around and shut it down. No, 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 you can't do it. And you need to have air cover from senior management. And even if you have air cover from senior management, senior management doesn't always have the control that, that we like to think. So let's talk about air cover. Brian, air cover, uh, what's the role of air cover from senior leadership in protecting innovation? Because otherwise, let's face it, innovation will die. I think about Sephora in that, in that model as being the answer to your question. The CEO uh, is specifically charged by the board uh, to foster innovation, and they've tied ROI to it. They've opened up an innovation lab and all of those things, and they're able to trace it to revenue. In that in that case, though, how it got there, like as Dana was explaining, it started with an executive sponsor within the organization who was willing to attach their name to the investments of innovation. That sponsor then was able to demonstrate upwards and around that their programs were having successes, and they were able to further grow the innovation effort by getting the C-suite to invest in a team that was beyond just any one person. And that team reported directly to the CEO and also to the board on innovation investments and progress. And so now they literally sit in the C-suite. Okay, it looks like Dana, you're, we're running out of, we're out of time. So Dana, it looks like you're gonna get the last word on this topic. What is the role of senior management in in an ideal world, whether it's in retail or other businesses, because this is a human issue, it's not an industry-specific issue, I think. What is the role of senior management in providing air cover to make sure that innovation can actually take hold and can happen? I think the role is, first, be very clear on what you're looking for and be very clear on what you're looking for this person or this department to accomplish. Be very clear on what success looks like to you as an executive. And then, you know, be a bit forgiving with, with in what's appropriate, right? And, and again, it's about air cover and very direct, clear communication. Fair enough. Um, we're out of time. I feel like we're not done yet, but <laughs> right. I mean, we're, but, but we're, we're out of time. So, so I guess any final, Brian, any like very quick, like final thought, like just to close this out. Well, if, if you're like Dana and myself and you're trying to fight for innovation, I think this is, if you get anything from this conversation, it is that don't give up. Uh, even though you're not appreciated, your company or a company needs you more than ever. Okay, that's pretty good. And Dana, you want to have the, would you like to have the final, final, like really now I'm actually telling the truth, like the real final word? The final, final, be nice to the people that run innovation in your company. We're usually weirdos. <laughs> And with that, that's how we have to end, like with that cliffhanger. We're weirdos. Okay. So, well, change agents, you know, uh, my my friend uh, David Bray, who's been on this show a number of times, 
talks about the role of of being a human flak jacket as as a leader of change agents, and I think that's that's a pretty good way to summarize it at the end of the day when we talk about senior level air cover. Well, this has been a fast 45 minutes. You have been watching episode number 282 of CXO Talk. I want to say a deep thank you to our guest today. Brian Solis is one of the most prominent researchers in digital transformation and change agents in the world. Brian Solis, thank you for coming back and I can't wait for you to come back again. Thank you and I can't wait. Dana Randall is per personifies being a change agent. She is the head of global innovation with Tapestry, which owns top retail brands, fashion brands, Coach, Stuart Weitzman, and Kate Spade. Dana Randall, thank you for being here, and I hope you will come back again as well. Thank you so much for having me. Now is the time to subscribe on YouTube. Do it. Check our website, cxotalk.com. We have amazing shows coming up, extraordinary shows. And everybody, thank you for watching. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm.